Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Kean Clancy and today we're speaking to Sergeant Rico Lucchese about his career in the Defence Forces, from joining to serving overseas, being wounded in action overseas and his experiences as an NCO in the 27th Infantry Battalion, Aiken Barracks, Dundalk. Uh, welcome, on Rico. Thanks very much for coming on. Good afternoon, sir. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so, what we're going, what we're going to talk about today, we're go- the broad structure we're going to follow. We're just going to ask you a bit about your early career, actually joining the Defence Forces, what that was like, um, like when you joined, and your own background as well, and, and and your name, which is kind of an unusual name, I'm sure. Um, we're going to talk a bit about overseas, then about your your time um, and your incidents overseas in, in which you were wounded. Um, we're going to talk a bit about your activities with the battalion um, as, a rec- as a recruiting sergeant, basically, which was, which was the role you were fulfilling here. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the 27th Battalion itself and how important being in Dundalk is to the battalion. And then we're just going to talk a little bit more about your own role here currently. So um, when did you join the Defence Forces? I joined the Defence Forces way, way back in November of 1985. Uh, so it was just straight out of school, leaving cert in Ireland in the 80s. I know we said we went through a recent, uh, a recent slum or a recent depression in Ireland, but uh, Ireland in the 80s really wasn't a nice place to be. Most of my contemporaries had headed to England. When, we, when you left school, if you didn't get a job in a factory, you were gone to England. I never really saw that myself. I'd, I'd been in the FCA for about a year beforehand. So by the time I was coming to leave insert, I was really uh, actively looking at joining the Defence Forces, two, two or three other guys at school me. And for, for anybody who's listening who, who may not know, the FCA is the, is the former name for the Reserve Defence Forces. For any of our very... <laughs> of course, my, my apology. The previous <laughs> incarnation of the Reserve of course, Defence Forces yeah. was, was the FCA. And what about, what about the name? So Rico Lucchese, it's a... It's my father's name. Italian. He's, he's, from, he's from Tuscany. And he came to Ireland in the mid-50s. Again, I said about a slump or depression. He came from Italy after the Second World War, and Italy had nothing. And most of his family and his, his peers had gone to different parts of the world to, to find work. My dad had come to Scotland, there was, an, there was quite an awful lot of Italians from his part of the world. He ended up traveling across then to Donica D in, in Northern Ireland, outside Belfast, where he had a, a relative who ran a cafe. And from that then, he was going for a couple of summers, he ended up coming to Dundalk, where another relative was running a cafe. And he met my mother and the rest is history. And the rest is history. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, very good. So, like, so you'd been, uh, sort of, you've been with the FCA for a year beforehand and you were all kind of teed up. You were interested in the Defence Force. What was it like kind of coming through, coming through the barricades? Was it here in Dundalk or was it? Everything was here. Everything was here. But I tell you, I remember when I left the Marist uh, in June the leaving cert of 1985, in the summer of 85, and thinking, nobody's going to ever tell me what to do again. I'm my own man. I'm out in that world. No teacher's going to tell me what to do. And a couple of months later, I'm running up and down the Red Barnes Road, a rifle over my head. And Jim Ryan and Pierce Redmond screaming at me. I wasn't, to- I wasn't long being told what to do again. <laughs> and what was, what was training like at that point? Training was very difficult, as it should be and as it must be. We were kids, we were all 17, 18 year olds, and the robustness, that, that's what it was, being. it was about being robust, it was about being tough, it was about looking after it yourself, but more importantly, looking after the people around you. And that's something that, you know, those of us that all went through either cadetship or recruit training can understand. It's about... Not being the individual, it's about being the team player. And we were very fortunate with a really good platoon and with really good instructors. And most of us knew each other. And in fact, of the 36 of us that joined the army, I think 20, 18 to 20 were from the same platoon within the RDF, the FCA. Oh, right, yeah. So, so, so it's a natural feeder in. Yes. At, yeah. at that stage, that's the way it used to be here. You joined the FCA 
with the idea of coming to the regular army. Okay, a, right. a lot of us did. And at the time as well, given that the border was quite an active area at the time, I, I, there, was a, there was an awful lot of training of recruits going on and there was, a, there was a great demand for people to come in. There was training, I think, it was two years before. So I think the cycles were maybe one to two years for the training in the, in the 27th Battalion and the Defence Force and such. But the battalion tried to recruit locally. And that's what we, most of us were, were local guys, a few from the north, but most of us were local guys. And again, a lot of us knew each other through school or football or indeed from the FCA. Yeah, okay. And so, so, so the camaraderie was already there. Yeah, exactly. You know, so so we were very, that's, why, that's why I often reflect on, on the guys, and there's still five of us serving within the battalion. That's why I always reflect. I think that's why we were so good, because we'd all known each other beforehand. Yeah. And it was kind of it was easy to build to build that For kind sure, of really so strong yeah, bond. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you got through the training. And where were you sent in? Were you, were you kept here? Or were you? No, we crew training finished with two star training, and then we were posted. There was twelve of us sent to Castle Blaney to support Company Twenty Seven Battalion. And we immediately went straight into the heavy weapons, or uh, sorry, the heavy machine gun platoon, point five platoon, which was brand new to the army the year before. So we were the first platoon that the Twenty Seven Battalion had of of HMG, and that was very interesting. The, and we uh, went straight onto, the, onto that course, we went to Castle Blaney. And because we'd just come out of recruit training and we were all ready for it, it came naturally to us. And it was very interesting, very interesting period of time. But remember as well, at the time we were talking 1986 and 87, it was very top heavy with duties, extremely top heavy with duties. And this is eight of the power duties. Eight of the civil power duties. Barrack Guard and Castle Blaney MSGs. Yeah. Uh, quite top heavy. And in fact, I know, and we're, we're in a situation now where. You know, those of us doing regimental duties may do one, two, possibly three a month. And I can say this without, without fear of contradiction, we were doing two, three a week. Right, so it was... Without a shadow of a doubt. Really, really high tempo. High tempo, yeah. And what was it like, what, what was it like setting up to go out on an operation along the border, to go out on, on those... Well, you, the MSGs, the MSGs, I know... Uh, Just this is, the MSGs again are for... The else. mobile security groups, yeah. where we would go as active security for the guards. Remember, the guards in, in the Republic of Ireland are unarmed. We'd be, we'd be their uh, protection as such. And that would consist of, a, of an NCO, usually a corporal, a driver and two riflemen, one of the riflemen being a radio operator. And we'd go out and task and, and we'd go and patrol with the guards and they'd set up a vehicle, vehicle checkpoint and we'd cover off with them. So that was interesting. Obviously, there was times it was very routine. But the interesting points were possibly when the British Army were doing high-level uh, operations on one side of the border and then we'd come on the other side. Uh, to to do to cover our side of the border, yeah, yeah. but a lot of it was interesting. A lot of it was routine, but it was uncold, and tiring, and wet. Yeah. But uh, and again, I wouldn't change a day of it. That's why we became soldiers. We, none of us wanted to be in, in real jobs. And like, how long at a time would you have been going out on those on those um, mobile security groups? Well, the mobile security is with twenty four hour duty. Okay. So you'd 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 alternate you'd alternate uh, your MSGs or your time in it. You might be going out for six hours at a time. If there's an operation going on. You would you would have a second, third, fourth element of MSG on, where you'd, you'd do six hours out, six hours in. In the Dundalk here, uh, and I know the boys will speak about it later. Dundalk here, you had four, maybe six elements of MSGs on, so there was quite a lot, a lot going on at the time, a lot of moving, moving parts, just to s sustain the operational uh, readiness and to uh, operation taskings that we were given on the border. Yeah, okay, and from your, from your own perspective, like did you did you see, like what for for you was it an active area? Did you see a lot of kind of did the guards, did the guards you were with ever pick up anybody or anything like that? Or we saw quite a lot of uh, the aftermath of uh, incidents. One particular incident, in fact, I was just uh, we're just going over the old, the maps. We're renewing the maps of the border, and uh, I have a private walk with me down in the ops room, and I showed him an area that when we arrived in Castle Blaney in, in May of 1986, about four days later, I think it was four or five days later, 
there was a contractor that had been working on the British Army bases, and he was he was uh, kidnapped and executed by the IRA, but he was left just across the border. His body was left, so we were called out. Again, we were brand spanking new to this, straight out in the back of a Land Rover, maybe three Land Rover fulls of young soldiers, and we're covering off, and this is, you know, this is where it's at, this is what it's all about. And we could see the body, and we could see the British Army. And then without warning, the, the British Army had sent a EOD in to pull the body out, and it was booby-trapped. So that was my introduction into operations along the border. Wow. Now, it wasn't always that high tempo, high tempo duty-wise, mm-hmm. but activity, not always that high tempo. But there was the potential for things like that. For sure, yeah. Another occasion, we were, we were at the Handball Alley at BC 37, just south of Colleville, when the IRA opened up on the, on the checkpoint, or sorry, on the OP in, in Tromokaval from near our location. You know, it's stuff like that, yeah. that, that we weren't aware of, that the guards weren't aware of, that they were moving at the time. No, but we we quite an awful lot, an awful lot more activity happened this side of the border. It's more active than here. But as I say, I said sometimes it was very high tempo operation wise. Other times it was very routine. But okay. we got used to it, and and most of us, when you look back and you say, yeah, it was an enjoyable period of our life. Right. And I'm, I'm again, I'm reiterating back the time. It was cold, it was wet, and you were hungry. But it was what we done. Yeah, it was what you were what we trained for, and what, what, and what done, you had expected yeah. to do when you yeah, came in. Yeah. And so this is obviously always all preparing you as well for eventually deploying overseas. For sure, yeah. At the time, at the time we had a full battalion in Lebanon. In fact, even in 1987, I think we'd, we'd set over 700 soldiers because we had a full recce company, which, which was later on uh, put into recce sections within the, infantry, uh, the rifle companies. So we had four large companies going overseas. So you could go overseas for six months. You could come home, reapply and go back out again within that period of time. So there was a high level. My recruit return finished training in April, in May of 1986. And by the summer of the following year, the first batch of us were going to Lebanon with the 61st Battalion in the summer of 87. The second batch of us, me included, went for the winter, the summer winter with the 62nd Battalion of 87, 88. And by the, the, the remaining, the 63rd Battalion, nearly all our platoon had been overseas. So it was that quick of a rotation. Wow. And again, your young soldiers, your 19, 20 years old, it's a huge experience. And it, of course it still is, going overseas should never be taken lightly. Yeah, it's yeah. a huge experience. And so again, Rico, what was the battalion number you said that you first deployed with? 62nd Battalion. In 1987? In 19, the winter of 1987, yeah. Oh, okay, right, yeah. So we'd all applied We'd all applied for it in summer. Again, it's all It's all our peers. It's my recruit platoon. We made up the majority of the, uh, and of the platoon of the border platoon and the border bunnies, as we were called. You remember the border bunnies and the Vikings. So and, and uh, so we made up the, the bulk of the border platoon. Us and, and the guys the same age as us from the 29th Battalion in Monin. So we formed up training here in Dundalk. This is where we done the training. And we came together and then we started training for deployment overseas. And it was hugely exciting. It was really, it was a big, big deal. Yeah. I, mean, I was 20 years old. A guy called Pat Sloan, who was in the army with me from Dundalk, who... Uh, who had joined the same time as me, he was 18. He was the youngest man in Lebanon. You know, so, and you try and reflect that without sounding too old. Like my, I, I have daughters at home, 23 and, and 19. You know, and I think, imagine, they're going overseas. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. How, and how your own parents probably but felt it, like you're going great. over. But again, I'm not, you know, it, many years ago when I don't sound like Uncle Albert, but it's the times it was, where you went and you'd done it and it was really interesting. It was a, it was a great experience. Yeah. And, we we uh, we deployed we deployed overseas in the winter first time. I was on a seven four seven. Air Lingus were chartered at the time, and to see the seven four seven at Dublin Airport, and to go onto the plane and away we went. Yeah, 
Yeah, and when you when you got out there to Lebanon as well, what way did you come in? Did you come in? We came in. We landed in Tel Aviv in Ben Gurion Airport, and then we we were bussed uh, or trucked up to the to the uh, to the AO. And I remember, in fact, that when I saw the AO for the first time, and it was still it was dark. Excuse <coughs> me, it was getting dark, and I looked, and it's like the Cooley Mountains at the back of the Cooley Mountains, and that's the first thing, and it's it, it's a long time ago, and I still remember, and in fact, I uh, we had the reporter Robert Fisk with us in the museum here two years ago. He's a friend of Lieutenant or, or Lieutenant Colonel Mark Herons, and he made a presentation of a rifle to us. So a conversation with him afterwards, and I said this very story to him, and of course he's an aficionado of, and an authority on the Middle East, and I explained to him about how I felt when I saw the hills of South Lebanon first where we were going, the Irish AO. I said it was like the Cooley Mountains. He said, interesting you'd say that, because when the resolution was first brought out and the UN were putting together the military, they give the Fijians the sea, the coast, they give the, uh, the Scandinavians the Bacar Valley, and they give the Irish Mayo. Yeah. And I said, why didn't they give us the sea? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I have read somewhere as well, uh, in, in one of the old uh, battalion stories, from one of the very early battalions from the late yeah. 70s, that someone, one of the commanders there had compared it to Galway, or, or kind of Connemara looking. Um, and so when you, when, you, when you got there, I mean, like I've been, I've been to Lebanon myself in the last, you know, within the last five years, like... Was it was a very did it strike you as a very rural place or? It was it was, not so much rural. It was an awful lot of uh, habitation, an awful lot of small towns, and and again, I I, I kind of remember writing home and saying to my dad, it was pretty pretty much, like like Italy, like tu- Tuscany, obviously not as not as wealthy possibly, or, or and uh, there been a lot of bond damage, but people were pretty much the same. People were generally friendly, and of course at the time we were billeted in different different villages. The whole unit wasn't together in one place. I remember I met two of my two guys, Peter McGuinness and Aidan Mackin, who for my recruitment tuna were there, and they looked really business FN slung around them. The, the V-neck jumpers with the patches on them, hair cut really short. And I'm thinking, really, they look, you know, and they were about to go home. I said, what do you need to do? Just two things you need to remember here. Always have your rifle with you and always keep it clean. And that was, sorry, three things about the rifle. was Always have your rifle, keep it clean, and never be late for duty. So right, so we went down. The boys are getting the haircut in a local. Uh, you know, there was an awful lot of interaction. With yeah, the there was. A, yeah, there was. So a, you know, you, you went in. There was a local man cutting hair in a reese, not even in a reese, in Idasa, just up from uh, from Hadadic checkpoint. And we went down with them just to meet him. Myself and a fellow called Paul Power, who were new at the sixty second battalion, with the two guys, Aidan and Peter. He said, "Does anything ever happen here?" Oh, it's sometimes they said there'd be nothing happened for a long time. Then it'll just blow up, but it's it's grand. You know that you'll be fine. And we sit next thing, boom, boom, boom. Three solid shot tank rounds come through the building close to where we were. You're sitting, you're in, you're in this barbershop and the next thing, like three rounds have gone through a building nearby. You said, you said tank rounds. Solid shot tank rounds as yeah. we found later on. But remember at the time as well that we were, where our AO was, it was dominated by either UN positions or DFF positions. I'm not sure. Well, the what, D- like the South Lebanese army at the time, the um, militia backed by uh, backed Israelis. By the Israelis. So we... In previous uh, tours of duty to Lebanon, they were known as the South Lebanese Army or the Lowry's locally armed, uh, locally armed. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but the DFF, the facto forces, as it were, then who were the Christian militia, backed and trained and paid for by the, the Israelis. Yeah. So they're the people we were directly in contact with. Yeah, yeah, and like, and so, so obviously, it must have felt like a kind of an unstable environment after that for you. Like once you sort of. It was. No, we re- we realised then how volatile it became. It could become, and it did become volatile, and there was quite an awful lot of incidents with us in the sixty second battalion, 
we had an incident, uh, the changeover between the second, three chalks coming out. I come out in the second chalk. The night the third chalk was coming out, the night the third chalk came down, or coming out post 6-2-1 in Bajahoon, was overrun by the Hezbollah, who used it, used it as a base to fire on the Christian militia and the DFF, who returned fire, and in the ensuing uh, pandemonium, two of our Irish soldiers were injured. Yeah, so it was, uh, as I said, a really volatile Yeah, play. volatile, and we were only there a week. Yeah. We were only there, not even a week, the, the change of revenue happened. So, and there was quite an awful lot of what's called firing closest. Now, we were on the OPs, and even on the checkpoints, but mainly in the OPs, you, you had uh, flare guns. And if the Christians or the Israelis fired close to you, you'd fire two red flares. And my understanding, in fact, not my understanding, I know this, we, we know this because later on we found out that up to that point, no other United Nations mission had been fired upon as much as we had uh, because we expended so many red red flares. Yeah, and just known because of the amount of red flares that yeah, were expended. Absolutely. Wow. So, so again, like I said, a lot of people might realise the level of volatility that was there at the time. Activity, volatility, and uh, yes, exactly. And it's something that I, I went back overseas a number of times afterwards. You know, the connection with home. Like, fellas were writing home, and we were clever enough. I remember we were only, we were only 18, 19, 20. We were clever enough not to write, you know, that we, the, the, the position was hit up last night, or it's hard to be overrun, and or shooting at us. Well, it wasn't all the time. Everyone clever enough not to scare your family at home. Remember, we know mobile phones. If you wanted to make a phone call home, you had to book one in advance. Yeah. And you literally went into uh, to Tibnine. There was a phone booth. Hello, ma'am, what's the weather like? Over. And then in McKee Barracks, it'd be changed around, and your mum would be on the end of the phone saying, well, Sonny, you're getting everything okay? Over. And that's the way it was. So it was just a one-way kind one of One-way conversation, yeah. And we had aerograms, which were a penny, or not even a dollar. We got them free. Aerograms, you'd send them home, and... And in return, I'd get the Argus of the Democrat, the local papers sent out to me. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the shootings. It, like, it didn't happen all the time. But when it did happen, it was... It, it could it be, happened. It could yeah. be very serious, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so kind of, I suppose, building on that, like, a few years later, you returned you return to Lebanon yourself. I, I went back. I went back in, uh, in 1989. But prior to that, when I was there in 87, I'd become friendly with a, with a, with a, a young Lebanese guy who lived not too far from the checkpoint. He's our age and used to knock about. And we, we had a great rapport with the local people. And, you know, it's one of the things when I go into the recruiting end of it, or even when I'm in the museum here talking about, about the Irish army, we're not a huge fighting army. We are very, very good at peacekeeping because we're Irish. And I'm half Italian. Because we're good at saying, what's the crack? We're good at mediating. And we're also, we're not seen as a threat. We're not colonialists. We're not there for any hidden, hid, other hidden agenda. And when we were on the checkpoint area, we became friendly with the locals. Mm -hmm. You know, it was quite common for us to become friendly with the locals and you'd go back on other missions and you'd meet them again. This one particular guy who we were friendly with, again, our age, and he'd come down, he'd have a cup of, cup of coffee with us at the checkpoint, you know what I mean? And we'd become friendly with them, we'd know their names. In the ensuing incident, in, when I went back in 1989 and I was involved in a shooting incident, he was one of the people that were killed in it. Right, okay. Okay, so... So this this poor guy lost his life during that that particular instance. So, but what, how how did this how did this come about? On the on the twenty first of March, well, actually, if you backpedal a wee bit, the local and Mal had become quite active within the area of uh, of a data. And Amal and Amal. The Amal being sorry, the, the Amal being the, the local uh, security force, for want of a better word, and they're recognised by the UN. But they'd become pretty active insofar as the, the, they were carrying out a lot, an awful lot of unauthorised attacks on the Christian compounds. And of course, that led to the Christians and the Israelis thrown into the villages, which upset everybody. So 
that was that was starting to get a build up, and his bowler were trying to build up as well. But it's mainly the the, Amal, the incident that I'm going to talk about. Um, there were two brothers involved in it with this particular Amal movement. On the morning of the 21st of March 1990, I had been working in the camp uh, in a data camp and uh, at the post 638 of headquarters of A Company, and there had been a kidnapping. Uh, well, not so much a kidnapping, but uh, a seizure of a person, a Lebanese person, by the Christians, by the Israelis, who had taken him into uh, across the across the uh, into no, in, sorry into the Israeli control there, the ICA. I was asked. My platoon commander was tasked to go and find out find out about him. I was in a car with the two IC, who was told to go into. Uh, the name of the town just going to me to find out where this guy was, to talk to the local Israelis to find out where he was. When we were coming back in, the Christian militia, the, the local Amal had f attacked it, uh, the compound and they'd returned fire. So we were caught in between. We had to go to Groundhog and Idaho. So uh, so the local the local Amal group had attacked the uh, Christian militia? Christian militia, yeah. And they, in retaliation, had fired into the village. So I'd, we'd go back into camp anyway. So I was around lunchtime. My platoon commander, Lieutenant Barry Ryan, was tasked to go into the village to see if there'd been any injuries. There were seven, sh uh, seven sh solid shot tank rounds fired into the village of Adada. So he was tasked to find if there were any injuries. He took a drive up Paddy Mason and myself as the, uh, as the rifleman and radio operator. So we went into the village of Adada to check if there'd been any casualties and what damage. So this is around lunchtime. And what happened was that we drive a couple of the civilians had showed us two houses that were very badly damaged. Again, solid shot tank rounds, they were like big bullets and they busted the walls down. At the same time, as we were around this house, uh, two local guys had shouted, Irish, boom, boom here, boom, boom here. Uh, anybody who's been to Lebanon, they know that's, the, that's not an Italian accent, that's the way to speak. And they showed us, this is where the, more or less, this is where the fire at the compound. And we looked and uh, we could see the compound, but there was no signs of any fire. So we'd walked around it and Paddy Mason had, dr had driven to get the car in a better position. And maybe about 50 feet behind us, not even, no, but... 15 feet behind us, he called, friends, Irish, Irish, here, here, and he pointed down, and there was a Russian GPMG, um, and the Russian GPMG had the hollow butt, and there was about 200, maybe 300 rounds of ammunition belted on it. So obviously this is the weapon that's fired upon the location. So uh, Paddy went into position to get a, to, to radio back to camp. The two local guys disappeared, and myself and Lieutenant Ryan had to look around, and I remember walking around the weapon, and the first thing we noticed was no empty casings. Like we were soldiers, you know, when you fire a, a GPMG, there's cases. There was no empty cases. First thing we noticed. And I walked around it just to see, you know, is it, you know, in the back of your mind, is this booby trap? What's this about? And I remember opening the top cover and clearing it, the same action as our own GPMG, and clearing the weapon. At the same time, Lieutenant uh, Ryan had, had told Paddy to ring for backup, which is the company Mobile Reserve. Now, this ties into, we had the Panards in Lebanon. In... No, December of 89, they were replaced with the Moags. Not the Moags, sorry. Yeah, the Sisu. The Sisu, yeah. which were an absolute state-of-the-art vehicle. Panards are good, but these were state-of-the-art. So the CMU arrived, and the CMU consisted of the driver gunner, driver and the gunner, which two, and then you had one and three, like an MSG unit I spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. Plus, in this case, we had the two, or the two IC of the baton, or the company, with us, the captain, Captain O'Connell, came out as well. So we come into the area where the weapon and the CO, Commodore Donald came out, right? Come out. So we came to the area where the machine gun and the, the bullets were. And we were told, 
to take the weapons and put them in the back of the sea suit. We were going to uh, we were going to walk out of the village. So I remember carrying the belt of ammunition. And those of us in the army know that when you carry a belt of ammunition, it's quite unstable. So I remember carrying the belt of ammunition to the few yards away to where the sea was parked to throw it in the back of it. And I remember seeing the, some of the local guys that we'd known, because remember I said to you earlier that we'd known these guys, shouting at us. And I had said to the, to the CO, to the CO now, not to my... So I think the Indians are here. He said, OK, we just carry on. So we'd put the, we'd put the, uh, the gear into the back of the ceases and we mounted up. But as we, were, as we were in the vehicles mounted up, now I'd already come down in the P4 Jeep. So now we have a P4 Jeep plus the Sisu. So I'm now in the back of the Sisu. And while we're in the Sisu, Ward, and we couldn't hear this, we were told just subsequently, that's why, there was a, uh, a funeral taking place on the Harris Road, which is very close to where we were. And when the funeral took place, they'd look for a UN, UN vehicle or UN personnel with a blue flag so the Christian militia wouldn't fire on them. So we had another Sisu with a big blue flag in it. Flying the flag so the Christians would know that it's not it's, it's not it's not insurgents that it's, yeah, that it's a funeral. They had contacted us and told us there were men moving towards us with an RPG. And as every infantry soldier knows, if you're in an armored car and there's an RPG coming, it's it's not good news. We were immediately told where to see with the dismount, and we're at the very back end of the data, up near up near Rashaf end of it. That's what we, at this part of the village. So we were walking out, and if you if just if you bear in mind that we had this P4 in the front, the Jeep in the front, and the Sisu with us kind of surrounded around. At this stage, it was 12, 12 Irish soldiers surrounding it. And as we were going through the village, coming into the village, we heard rounds going off. The CO gave the ward, ward then to cock weapons. And I remember we had just got the styres. Before that was the FN. So we just got the styres, and I took, took the styre off. In fact, the, the 66th Battalion was the first unit with the styre. So I remember t unslinging... The sling is not like it was now, it's the old sling. Unslinging and cocking a rifle and thinking, this is getting, you know, your adrenaline starts picking up then. You know, and I won't use the word scared yet, but the adrenaline starts picking up and it was rounds going off. So we were then, we're then moving into the village and I haven't spoken about this in a while, but we were moving into the village and we were surrounded by the locals. Now, these are the guys that we knew. We're talking about the two brothers I spoke about earlier. Uh, Right beside us, absolutely beside us, and they're incandescent. They're screaming, they're shouting. Obviously, they don't want us to think. Screaming, shouting, actually. Yeah, they don't but they knew you already. They knew you. They, they knew, knew us. Yeah, yeah, they knew us all. And they're screaming and shouting at us. They don't want us to take the weapon. Now, at, so we have this P4 in the front. Now these guys are surrounded us, walking. So they they've a bubble around us, but we're going forward and we're saying, "No, oh, we'll keep going. We we'll keep going. Let them shout and scream. Let them shout and scream." Because nine times out of ten, they, they decrease, decrease. I remember shouting at Muhammad. Uh, Shouting, Muhammad, go easy, go easy, go easy. Go easy, go easy, go easy. And as we got into the village, his brother Joseph wrestled with one of our guys called Auntie Sheeran, who's in the 27th Italian at the time, wrestled with him, and he's wrestling with him, he shot him in the back of the leg, and Auntie fell. Right? With that, with that, uh, with that, the guys in the, on the, the turret of the, well, there was no turret at the CSU at the time. The GPMG was at the forward. You know, there was, a, there was a commander's position. That's yeah. where it was before the turret came. Remember the brand new. They had opened up on Joseph. And Mohammed's in front of us. Mohammed levelled his rifle at us. And we levelled our rifle at him. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is the way I see it, right? It's the way I, way I saw it and the way I remember it. And I'm speaking now because it's coming back to me again. And I don't speak about it a, a, an awful lot. But this is the way I saw it. He was far from me as you are. As you are now, sir, in this interview. A couple of feet away. And I pointed my rifle out and fired four, four rounds, maybe five, but I know I fired four. 
And I wasn't the only one who fired him, and he fell. And if you think of it, the films, they do all this. Mohammed fell in front of me as if somebody had just taken a plug out of him. Literally, you know the movie The Matrix? There's a scene in where they take something to the back of the head and just drop. That's to this day, to this day, and I'm almost still convinced that I saw him splashing into his own blood. He fell. Right, so Mohammed fell. Now, I hadn't seen Anthony. Anthony had fallen off the wall, and I didn't see Joseph's body. I was just concentrating on Mohammed. The rounds firing. We then moved, and there was a blockhouse in the middle of a data village. And uh, we went to ground, and I had Captain O'Connell beside me. And at the same time we were marching out, we were walking out before the shooting happened, there was a guy called Ali, you know, and again, another young fellow that we knew, our age bracket, who was walking. I might have to stand up to do this one, right? Ali Mason's riding a P4, and he's got his rifle across his belly at this guy, and this guy's walking beside Paddy with the RPG stuck in the Paddy, grinning at him, and Paddy's grinning back at him. And we're driving in. So when the shooting happened, that guy with the, and we, two boys are dead. Well, I, again, I can't speak of it because I didn't see Joseph after he fell. I was just concentrating on, on, on Mohammed. The guy with the RPG, we got into the blockhouse. And again, there's a couple of things I remember very, very clearly about that, as if it just, it, it happened yesterday. There's other parts, like through the, it's a long time ago. It's yeah, two of course, years yeah. ago. But th these are the things I remember. These are the clear things I remember. Ali ran past us, myself and Captain O'Connell, ran past us with his left hand in the air and the RPG in his right arm, his right shoulder, as you're carrying. And he ran past us and I had my rifle at him. And because he was running away and the rules of engagement, I had dropped my rifle. He turned round and he fired the RPG. And I remember the projectile coming straight for us, the white projectile, as if in slow motion. And it missed the, P it missed the Sisu, but it hit the back left-hand side of the P4, dog-legged, and blew the P4 up in the canopy. I remember the bang, and we looked around, and the canopy came down and landed in the electric wires. And I saw Paddy Mason lying on the ground. Right? So this is all in the space of a couple of seconds. So with that, I remember a load of people grabbing Paddy. We jumped over into the ditch. There was a kind of a ditch leading into the checkpoint area of 6th Street Alpha, where, where our own lads were. And I remember pointing, pitting, taking my rifle over the, and just firing maybe three or four more rounds. And then literally running, sprinting into the village, which is about another 70 metres, into the, into the checkpoint area where we had some sort of control. So our, we went into the checkpoint area with the gabions. You remember the stone buildings that we had? In, mm. And the checkpoint consisted of a corporal, six or eight, two guys, and one guy in the roof with a GPMG. It was a guy called John, uh, John Cow, one of our lads. So we went into the checkpoint, and I remember some of us wearing, some of us wearing peak caps, others were, I was wearing a beret. And I remember the corporal saying, and, and a guy called Chucky Connor. I remember Chucky Connor, yeah? He was there. I says, Paddy Mason's down, Anthony Sheeran's down. And I remember Justin McBrett. And with that, the, the Sisu came into the checkpoint area. And there was rounds going off everywhere. I mean, they were coming everywhere, rounds everywhere. It's as if everybody, not only in the village of Adada, but everybody in set Lebanon, they picked the rifle up from under the bed and they put rounds down on us. And I remember the Sisu came in with Paddy Mason hanging on to the bull bar at the front, this big butt, and he's bleeding from his mouth. And, and I think I remember him bleeding here, but bleeding from the mouth. And the CEO commented on hanging on to the other bull bar, right? And I remember Justin McBerry and running over to where Lieutenant uh, Ryan was. And he was front of, in front of the house where we used to stay in. We had accommodation downstairs. Remember I said to you earlier that we were billeted in different houses. Mm -hmm. And I remember being absolutely full of adrenaline. It's not a case of, oh, shit, shit, shit. It was just, you know, I, I, it's hard to explain that it was just, it was just adrenaline. And I remember bouncing around, and I remember thinking that we have to get out of this area. 
And I didn't think of it, I thought of it later, you know, it was obviously we were on a killing ground, but I didn't think of it that. I just thought, we are now deep into it here, we need to get out of here and try and get ourselves some sort of backup or some, because there's rounds coming everywhere. We could see them dancing around everywhere. John Cow could not get at the mag on the roof position. He told me later on that every time he went to lift his head, he was being, they were shooting at him. Every this, single this time. This was the machine going on the, on the yeah, roof. Yeah, and he was there, this was going on for maybe seven or eight minutes. And I ran over to, to uh, Lieutenant Ryan and I was kind of bouncing around and as I turned around, I got hit. And I remember, you know, if you play football and you get, you get bad knock and the wind's knocked straight at you. Mm. And I knew straight away just the wind had been knocked out of me. And we were wearing the flat jackets and I'll go back very quickly to the flat jackets. On the 24th of February the year before, Mickey McNeil had been killed right at that checkpoint. Mickey McNeil was in my recruit platoon and he'd been killed by the Christian militia who fired a heavy machine gun down. Mickey was having a cup of tea, heavy machine gun. The SOP was then that we wore the flat jackets and we all bitched and moaned about it, but if I hadn't worn a flat jacket, I would have died. So I remember ripping open the, ripping open the flat jacket and as I opened my mouth, just blood came out and Lieutenant Ryan was in front of me and I fell to the ground and I didn't lose consciousness. But I remember about it that, you remember I said to you that the area was we stayed in the house beforehand? Yeah. The, you know, everyone's name was called Ali, but Ali owned a shop and he was a genial Arab in his late 50s and his wife was a nice enough lady but she had Habib and she looked a lot older than she was but I remember her and I honest to God this, I remember I said to you earlier that there's a couple of things I remember very clearly about it and I remember lying and she was looking at me going <coughs> screaming Rico 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 screaming I mean this is not good you know what I mean but anyway they got me into the back of the, uh, the P4 or into the back of the Sisu and I remember the paddy was one side and I was the other side of his legs and I, every time I was breathing I was drowning right every time I was breathing we had a guy called Jay Corley, who was with the 5th Infantry Battalion, again, went down to the Ranger Wings now in the Air Corps. Jay recognised the, uh, the injury I had as being a uh, chest wound. And I was carrying my, f uh, my field dressing here. He took the field in your, dressing in your out. top pocket. Yeah, top pocket. But he thought that was the, he thought that was the exit wound. That was the, or the, the entry wound. That was the exit wound. The entry wound was here. But he, they were able to put me on, on, on my recovery position to allow the one good lung to breathe. So, so you actually that, been hit in the back? So I was hit just on the side, yeah, in the thorax. Yeah, just okay, the, right, yeah. And uh, we got a... Uh, I was in the back of the armoured car, anyway, and they got us out. But I remember John Cow telling me that he saw the armoured car leaving, and that he said, if I don't get off this roof now, and he literally... He, to this day, he couldn't tell you. It's 30 foot. He got the mag, he got the mag, his own rifle, and he jumped with the box of ammunition. And he still... To this day, he says, I've no idea how he done it. And he got into the, he got into the CSU. Paul Clark was the driver of the CSU. Paul got us into the regiment aid post. He broke all sorts of records to get us out. We got into the regiment aid post, and we were fortunate at the time that we'd only a couple of uh, surgeons in the army. One of them happened to be a guy called Commandant Charles Matty, who was there, and I was rushed straight in uh, to the. How far away was that from the, the post? The, the, in Tibnine was on a normal day, fifteen minutes. It was about seven minutes it took Paul to get there. It, it, as the crew flies, it's about five or six kilometres. And were, were there still rounds being fired at that stage? Rounds going off everywhere as we were taken out. As we were going in, so my own recollection is that being in the back of the armored car, uh, Chucky holding my hand, uh, you know it, it, that that sort of thing, and, and just not being able to breathe and screaming the pain, and there was none of this. I'll be all right, lads. None of it was none. Of, I was screaming. I was screaming, and uh, they got us into the RAP, and Charles O'Malley coming to O'Malley, and the first thing I remember is that they ripped open, uh, ripped open my my uh, my shirt, and my and the, he put a chest strain into me here. And it was the first pain. I remember the shooting, being shot, wasn't as sore as this. 
it was like a it was like a pen uh, for all on pen supports. It's a big pen without the inside. It was a tube, and he banged the tube in my chest, broke my chest bone. And as soon as that happened, the blood came out, and I went <gasps> just like that, as if come, somebody had taken a pillow off my head. Yeah. And that obviously was the, took the pressure off my lung. But I remember there was also a CS. You're going to kill me his name. He's the DSM. He was in Brickens. Name's got it in my head. He was there, and they were looking at my blood group. And this is the truth. I had the blood group, the wrong blood group, but I'd able, I was able to tell the CO, so they had done a Mickey Mouse job in it. I'm all negative, and they could barely read it. And I was able to tell them, I'm all negative, I'm all negative. I was able to tell them that. Because all negative, you can give blood to everybody else, but you can't take anybody else's blood. Yeah. So that, that, then they put us onto the, to the helicopter, and we were taken to, to, to Swede Medkoy in Nakura. Anthony Sheeran, Anthony Sheeran. Now, one of the things about the army, and we're all in the army a long time, if I was there, this wouldn't happen. Do you know what I mean? Annie Sheeran, everyone thought Annie was dead. Annie had been shot and rolled into the ditch. Annie had made his way back to the, to the checkpoint area, to the, sorry, the headquarter area. He'd no, he'd no rifle, and his leg, the back of his leg's almost gone, but he's in shock, and he's, he's trying to hobble back, and the Irish guys are looking, and they're running out to meet him. There was an, a local Lebanese guy ran behind him, and Annie told me this, he thought this fellow was coming to finish him. This guy was a local guy who'd saw what happened. Grand put his arm around him and lifted him into the camp. And the Italians landed the aircraft into the camp to take Anthony, oh. Anthony to Sweden Medkoy. So at the end of that, so how, like how, many, how many wounded? Um, three Irish, two, two Lebanese killed. Two Lebanese killed and three Irish wounded. Three Irish wounded, wounded. Yeah. yeah. And from, you, from your perspective, Rico, it is, you reckon it was as a result of picking up that uh, machine gun, that uh, Russian machine gun? It was, sir, yeah. 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 That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And he never found out who the two that showed it to you were? No, to this day, no, no. But uh, it demonstrates the complexity that, because Lebanon is still quite a very, is a very complex place, even sure. now, and it was a very complex sure, place sure, then. Yeah. And I, I, I go back, and I've often go back to the fact that they were all friendly with us. But as soon as the, as soon as the shooting started, every one of them were firing at us. Every single one of them. It's, it's something we, we spoke about later, is that uh, it was rounds going off everywhere. I mean, coming in everywhere to us. But it's, a, it's difficult, you know, and when you talk about it, because nobody's really interested except you're a soldier. You know, nobody's, and then when you say to a soldier, oh, you waited out, will you? If I was there, it wouldn't happen. You know, but it's, it's, it's one of those things, and it did happen, and it, it happened, and I came out the better side of it. That's it. So you were brought down to the Swedish medical company in Nakura at Unifil headquarters, and from where there? We were there for a couple of days, and then because of the injuries I had, uh, my, thought my, my uh, heart wall was damaged, subsequent was, and I was sent to Rambam Hospital in Haifa, which is pretty much akin to the best place you could be shot with gunshot wounds. And there was a surgeon called Best who was working with me. And he explained to me what I spoke to you earlier about the flat jackets, the old Vietnam flat jackets we wore, that had I not been wearing one, that the, when the bullet hits you, it, it, it's the, the energy that goes through it, through your body. But enough energy was absorbed by the time it hit the flat jacket. So the time it hit me, enough of it had been dissipated. So it had taken enough out that it, it didn't blow my chest away. But I, I was there for two weeks and just come back to it, it, it was extremely traumatic for my family. Like I, you know, but my family, you know, you can think about my parents and my family at home in Ireland. And there was no real link here. There was no, there was no mobile phones, you know. And they were trying to get the contact. The op staff here were absolutely fantastic. Frank Clark, absolutely, who knew my dad, trying to ever, as much information as could. Liam Nolan, who called to my dad to tell him, told my parents with Father Kevin Cooney, and, you know, I speak about the connection the 27 Italian have with the, the local. Kevin Cooney had taught me at the Marist school. He, he'd been a close family friend. 
He'd gone to my house with Liam Nolan. To, to my, my dad happened to be off work that particular day to tell him what happened to me. Can you imagine that? You know, even yeah. even when I think about it now, I, I kind of get caught up with it. Not about me, about them. But there was no there was no contact home. But the funny thing was, my father's sister lives in Scotland, Italian, and her husband was Scottish, who worked for uh, worked for one of the oil companies. A lot of connections in Israel, and this is true. It's one of those quirky things. He had a friend who was a colonel in the Israeli army. This colonel came to visit me in Rambam Hospital, right? And would immediately ring back to Scotland to my, my, sister, my dad's sister, who would then ring my dad, and my dad would info the op staff here. Yeah. That's how mad it was. He'd come and visit me, so that's how it went. So this Israeli colonel came to visit me. So I was in Rambam for two weeks. I remember, you know, you had a lot of the tubes down here, I couldn't speak. There was a nurse from Belfast, a nurse from right. Belfast, who was working with me, and she told me, write down my parents' name, I, 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 you know, for the first three days because of the stuff I couldn't speak write down my parents' name and telephone number. And she ran them. So all that stuff, and she was saying, look, he's in a good place, he's recovering, his life is no longer in danger, rest assured, we'll get him home to you. And that stuff was great. Yeah, you know? of course it is. Yeah, must have been, must have been peace of mind, especially in a yeah, time yeah. where it's so difficult to communicate. You know, the world's a lot smaller now, but it was in Lebanon, you may as well be near the other end of the world at that time. Yeah, yeah. And, and my mother was subsequently interviewed in the paper, and she was shot, shot, I think, all I think is dead. Yeah. You know? So that's what you think. Anyway, so... We were taken back to Rambam or to Nakura, and then we were all repatriated home on the fifteenth of March. And were the three, the three, three you're, yeah, seven, you're seven three. two, and the two other wounded. We soldiers. were flown from, we flown from Beirut to uh, to London Heathrow by British Airways. It's funny we went down, to, we stayed in Tel Aviv the night before, and we went in for a beautiful uh, Thai restaurant I've never heard of, absolutely fantastic. And I was in so much pain, I cu- I couldn't go, I, I couldn't eat, and I, I never, Carolyn, tell you this, I never turned food away. But uh, I, so we, we got onto the plane and we were treated like royalty. Roy, British Airways took us to the front of the plane, business class, and we got the champagne and everything else in the hot tiles. And to this day, they give you another wee socks, they give you and take your shoes off. So I still, I've never, this, my socks are still in the kit box I have with all paraphernalia overseas. But so anyway, we got to, we got to London, we changed into the UN, UN service dress, which we call the UN whites. And from there we flew to Dublin. And we got to Dublin, the, the chief of staff is waiting for us and a couple of ambulances and they came in a wheelchair with me. And I says, there was no way I'm getting off this plane in a wheelchair. I could walk, you know, you know. It was just so, Anthony, Anthony barely walked, but he walked off the plane. And Paddy Mason was fairly badly injured as well. But, uh, but our parents went to the airport. This is, this is the Irish Army of 1990. They were at Brickens Hospital, you know what I mean? And so we had to go to Brickens Hospital, but through all the formality of them and before... My parents and my friends... St. Brickens in Dublin, yeah, yeah the military... St. Brickens Hospital in, in Fermi Road. So we were kept there for the night, and we were let go home the following day. So I had, I had a friend came up to collect me uh, the following day, and we all went, we said goodbye. We, we were given basically given local leave. We'd come back up there. But remember, this is March the 16th, the following day is St. Patrick's Day, right? So I came home to the dock, and my UN whites, and the whole of the dock is out to see me. I'm sorry. I just got a wee bit wound up with that as well. The whole of the dock, everybody... I was 22 years old, you know, at that stage, you know everybody. Yeah. And everybody was there just to wish us best. It was wonderful. It was really, really good, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And that, that aided to my recovery as well. Yeah, I'm sure it did, yeah. It put you in a better place, kind of going forward. And how long then was your convalescence recovery? Uh, I was fortunate. I was, I was working in Castlevania, and I went back. I wanted to go back to work almost immediately. But I was out, I was out obviously, UN leave. I was out for about a, maybe a month and a half, two months at the most, before I got back in the uniform. But I could feel myself getting better and better all the time. And I subsequently met the girl who, who married. I met her about a week after coming home. And I'd known her beforehand. 
and we start going with each other and eventually married her. So she was there from the very start of it. So I was, you know, you go to Brickens, I could feel myself getting better all the time. Uh, I stopped taking medication, it was painkillers, I stopped taking that because, I, I, you know, I just, I had a couple of broken ribs and that was basically the, the, the damage done to me. So I, I, got, I got pretty, I got healthier pretty quick. They wouldn't let me go back in Judy's in Castlebane and I wanted to. And I eventually, I, but they let me do the Compson, Compson work, which is the radio room. And I eventually rang Commandant O'Malley. I said, I'd like to be put back in Judy's. I, I don't, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm 20, at that stage I was 22. I don't, you know, I, this is not where I want to be. So I come up and had a chat with him. He says, how are you feeling, Grand? Was he your company commander at the time? No, the... Commandant O'Malley was the sergeant. Oh, right, that, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that had done the work of me. Ah, yeah. Uh, so he'd back in Brickens. So anyway, I got upgraded. I was never downgraded. But I got back, got onto the range, got fired, and then I'm back doing full duties. So, uh, you know what I mean? And you get on with it. Yeah. And the army being the army at the time, the, the contemporaries, you know, you get a ribbon here and there, but you just go on with it. You, yeah, you, you, get, on you, you get on and with it. And that's the way it was, and that's the way I've always been. I, I decided not to lay back and say, woe was me. I got onto it. Yeah. Now, the injuries I had, severe in the war at the time, were not, were not life-changing. And... The thing about it is as well that that wasn't the last time we went back to Lebanon either. I went back a couple of years later, which probably wasn't the cleverest thing to do. And again, retrospectively, it was unfair of me to do it to my parents, you know, because they'll get very uptight about it. And I said, no, I need to do this. It's, it's the old one. You fall off a horse, you get back onto it. So I went back in the summer of, of, uh, I went back in the summer of 93 with the 73rd Battalion. And we were only there a day or two. And then, again, going back to what I was saying about how we knew everybody, you know, two locals came up and threatened me because of the shooting incident. I was moved more as a safety precaution for the battalion. I ended up doing the, doing the tour of duty in Nakura, but then I, you know, it, it, it was advised that you can't go back to Lebanon. So that kind of killed my overseas missions. But then I, I concentrated on everything else when I come home. Yeah, yeah. But I was glad I went back. I, I have no issue going back, and I had a great experience in Nakura. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's I got to see a lot of Israel. My, my girlfriend came out to visit me in, in Cyprus, so. That was good, yeah. And you've gotten, but you have gotten overseas again since. since, since yeah, I've been time. over a number of times. Yeah. Yeah, you've yeah. been to uh, Bosnia, I believe. I was in, I was in Bosnia with the, the military police in Kosovo, and then I went to Chad mm-hmm. with uh, with Carl, and then um, rotating out to Syria. All things being equal, on the first of October. Fantastic. So you got back on the horse anyway, and for the back overseas. on the horse, yeah, yeah, brilliant. And I didn't, and I held on to it for dear life. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Uh, but so when you, when you came home, Rico, you what, what you ended up. The line you ended up going to then, you obviously, you obviously went and did your NCOs course. NCOs course in 1995. And again, the army of the 90s, there'd been an embargo in recruiting from 1990 to 94. And I remember at the time, we were in Blaine, and I says, as soon as we get new recruits, like the, the average age of the army at that stage was 22, 23, because of no recruiting for four years. So these new recruits came in in 94. We called them the Yellow Packs. And it kind of reinvigorated. But it was very, very hard to get promoted. I was nine years in... As a, as a private before I got an even a look at the NCOs course and there was only two of us from the whole battalion got it so when they went on the NCOs course came back to Casablanca as a, as a as a brand new corporal I'll change the world corporal no great but good good work ethic in Casablanca continued on with the regiment duties with the 8th and civil power duties and Casablanca closed in 1998 in the reorganisation of the or the, the first reorganisation of the battalion and I found myself in, in Aiken Barracks. I, I only lived, I live locally. Here in Dundalk, where we're here sitting in, Dundalk, in the museum now. Where we are now, where I'd done my recruit training. So I, I came here in 98, and I just, you know, I came very, very easily into it. Yeah. There was no, you know the transition, you think you're coming from one unit, although support company's part of 27 Battalion, because it was Casa Blaney, it was, it, it was a satellite of the 27 Battalion. It wasn't really, we weren't really 27 Battalion. 
So we went into it and I fell in my feet here straight away. Yeah, fantastic. Just came straight, hit the ground running in, in Dundalk. But you got very involved into recruit training then as well, as a corporal and then well, later as, as a sergeant. Yeah, I, I was, the first time I was in Castlevania, I was sent to train a, a, a platoon of apprentices in, in the depot in, in Calbury Barracks. So that was my first taste of it. Then I was training recruits in the dock here in 1999 and 2000. And I got really into it. And I really, really enjoyed uh, recruit training. And so far as that, well, that I was looking at it. And I was looking at uh, youngsters coming to the gate here, trying to find out how to join the army. And nobody knew. So I said, I volunteered. I went to, the, I went to my CS and I said, I'd like to do that. And I said, I explained what I'd like to do. Give me a small office. I'd like to be the point of contact. I'd like, and this is absolutely wrong. I got my blessing from the CEO. But you know, you've done your own duties. So I set up a small office insofar as that a guy would come to the gate and he'd like to know about the army. He's not sure. And I'd give him a bit of information. I'd invite him to bring his parents in. He said, bring your folks in. We chat about what, the, what this entails, what your career in the army does. And we built on that and it became very successful. It became so successful that we, we, I lassoed a lot of people from the area. Yeah. I, I got a lot of people interested in the army locally. For good or real, I don't know. You're looking at one of them there. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I, I'm quite proud of that, that we've we done that. And we, we worked very hard at it. Okay, fantastic. And like, so what, to your mind, having spent, I, th- I think you've trained nine recruit platoons? Nine recruit platoons, sir, yeah. And, yeah. and what, to your mind, is important while you're doing that, as, in, as, in, as, as, a, as a recruit, recruit NCO, as, as, a, as, as a trainer of people? What's, what's the focus on the individual. The focus on, on the youngster you have in front of you. Now, not all of them are going to get through it. But with the right motivation to win. And if they're self-motivated, they'll get through it and they'll get through it. If they're not, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You, the individual himself has to come prepared. If he doesn't come with the goods, there's so much you can give him, but he must do But the one thing I, I, I'll take back from recruit training, and I say to all the, the junior NCOs now, is that it's the one thing in the army we have an end product. It's the one thing you can say, that's my stamp in it. And you look at those young fellas and young girls at the end of the, end of the training, and they're standing and their parents are looking at them. And you say, yeah, I, I, I done that. I helped, I helped mold them. And it's a very, very humbling experience as a recruit instructor. And I, I think, I think the more you give into recruit training, the more you get out of it. Fantastic. You know, you, you, can't, go ha- you can't go half-cocked at it. You must give it your all. And yeah. if you give it your all, it's an extremely enjoyable experience. A rewarding experience, yeah. For sure. It, it's, it's probably one of the few rewarding experiences we get in a career. And as regards... Say you talk about local engagement, bringing people in from the community. Like, how important do you, would you say this for for the twenty seventh battalion being here in Dundalk? Like, from an identity perspective and being close to the border, it's very important to Dundalk. It's 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 supremely important to the twenty seventh battalion. I should say, the twenty seventh battalion was formed in nineteen seventy three uh, at the, you know, at the at the the, the the middle of the troubles really, because by nineteen seventy three it become very, very vicious. We had we had garrisoned the. But, uh, barracks here in 1969 at the outset of the modern troubles with uh, composite units called infantry groups who came from Dublin and from the south and in 1973 they decided to, to form the 27th battalion and it was initially made up of guys from different units but then we recruited it locally locally recruited locally and that was a very very important because we wanted to tell and, and we still do we want to tell the people of the dock that 27th battalion in fact the defence forces are your defence forces they're not somebody behind this wall and naked on the point road they belong to you and the sons and daughters and husbands and wives of the people of Dundalk and the area. In fact, the battalion crest is made up of the shield of Q Holland, which is the ancient uh, Tornbow colour, which is right on our doorstep here in Cooley. So, like, with regard to recruiting, recruiting locally, I think you, you told me uh, you have a bit of an interesting nickname, given your, uh, 
think your vehicle is very much drawn from your heritage. This is, yeah, I, I, I've uh, Vespa scooter and I've driven them since I was a kid. I'm very much into them. It's, it's very much part of uh, who I am. But locally, one of the one of our guys, his brother, uh, there goes there goes the scooter or the recruiter on the scooter. And it stuck with me, a lot of the boys, because I'd be going around. And, you know, I, I went around to a lot of schools and to youth clubs and the shopping centres here doing a lot of recruiting. And I became well-known, well, a load of us did, in the dock for about two or three years solely for recruiting because we pushed it quite hard here. Yeah. And again, here he is in the scooter, the recruiter on the scooter, which is very funny, I think, at the time. <laughs> I still laugh at it. Yeah, but I think recruiting's uh, supremely important. You go out and you, you must reach out. I, I'm, I'm not so sure if having an online thing is the right way to do it. I'm not so sure. And TV adverts, I'm not so sure. You have to go out and reach into, the, reach into your, your audience. Yeah. You have to go and speak to them and you have to go and identify them and you have to say, look, I think you'd make a good soldier. Give it a go. It's five years. It's, there's so much you could do within this period of time. And of course, talk to the parents. Let the parents know. Yeah, give them some information. Yeah. About, yeah. I think I'm not so sure if, you know, and I get it all the time. Well, I've applied online. I haven't heard anything back. I don't know. I think, I, I think personally, and, and this is personally, when we were doing it here, that if you came to me and said, I've applied, okay, I'll find out where your application is and we get it up the line for you. And I think the hands-on touch is better. And also, and also, I'm a great believer in esprit de corps. And, you know, we spoke previously that uh, the corps have their own esprit de corps, whereas the battalions in the army have their own esprit. And I'd like to think, and not that I think, I know that the 27th Battalion is a great esprit de corps. You recruit locally and you train them locally and keep them locally. That's where you're building. That's where you're building up the. You know, that local identity. That for the, sure. That's where you're building up the identity. You, you belong here. And I, I was I was chatting to the boys this morning at coffee that somebody had been slagging us off one time and you know, we were all slagging the, the, the battalion off. Then somebody from outside the unit had slagged us and we all got together. How dare you? Yeah. You know, it's one thing us doing it, but don't let anybody from outside that. Yeah, you had a great sense of identity yeah. in this yeah. your local yeah. area. Yeah, identity is very important to us all. To yeah. us all. Fantastic. Yeah. So. It's been a while since you've since you've actually trained recruits. So you're currently the operations sergeant for the battalion itself. So you, you look after operations and oversee them. And give us give us a bit about that. Operations quite interesting. Uh, the battalion, of course, was very operational, and it still is an operation battalion. But since the, uh, our bread and butter was the border and, and the eighth civil power, let's move the way now to a more training role and preparing troops for overseas, and obviously supporting the rest of the defence forces, the TRRs, with the, uh, the troop requests. But the operations are still interesting. It's an interesting job, and uh, we've a lot of connection. Going the border is the big thing now at the moment, right? You know, we, we're going to COVID shortly, but the border, of course, is something that we've been shouting from the hills for a long time. Don't forget about the border. It's there. You know, we have the ceasefire, thank God, and there's no soldiers either side of the border, but it's still in our AO. And as as infantry soldiers here, in our we should know where our AO is. When you travel overseas. You're given your area for responsibility, your area for operations, and you know where demarcation lines. We unfortunately now are not sure where our demarcation lines are. So if Brexit kicks off and we are tasked with supporting the customs or the Garda Shikorn on the border, are we confident in sending a junior officer or a corporal out to the border and say we need you to get to BC 22 or BC 56 or BC 17? These are all the border crossings, yeah, and, border crossings and, 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 and we're, we're focusing. So we're doing at the moment, and we have been doing it, spending a lot of time uh, photographing the border for start to to, to make a positive photographs and mapping. And the mapping section have done really, really well. The standard mapping they've given us in the photographs. So we're now back to the stage now where we're sending junior leaders out with riflemen and with drivers. 
to familiarise themselves with, with, with basically with this water ballywack which so it's just so that they know what what's out there what it looks like Absolutely. so that it's not a total surprise Absolutely. in the event that that there is a requirement in the event remember we're in the military we're in an insurance game you know we're there just if what if that's where we do the actions on that's where we rehearse that's where we train what if what if we are required to deploy in the border again at least we'll have a work of knowledge of it and unfortunately the time passes and the wheel turns and we all get older I'm one of maybe half a dozen, if it is half a dozen, with any sort of remembrance or knowledge of the border area. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And as you say, it's in your area of operations, so you need to be familiar with it. For sure, yeah, yeah. And as regards aid to the civil authority in the local area um, and, and helping to underline to the local area that the battalion is there and the battalion is there to support them, COVID-19 must have been a, hu- must have been a huge... As it was for everybody, sir, as it was for everybody. Now, the first thing, COVID-19, of course, we had to make our own soldiers safe. Make sure that we're all in a safe environment within Aiken Barracks and, and, and everything that entails. But also to reach out and let everybody know that we're available should we be tasked. And it was well organised through Brigade, or through, through the Army, but through Brigade. Our tasking prim- primarily has been to assist with traffic management at DKIT, which is the Dundalk Institute of Technology, where they've been doing testing uh, successfully since, since March. So we've got a team going out every day to assist with traffic management and also... And the girls on the ground, the nurses on the ground have told us they feel very secure that our lads are there. Because remember, you can walk in off the street, walk in off the road basically. With our lads there, it offers some, some sort of security to them. And they feel they're walking in a safe and secure environment because our guys are there, which is very important. Mm-hmm. We've also, like the other units in the brigade, we've also helped unload the, the, the PP coming from Dublin Airport, which is ongoing again at the moment. So all the tasks that have been given to us have been, have been answered by us and by the other units in the brigade and that's very important and as the military we need to be seen that we're there to we are and i keep saying to everybody the military belongs to the people of ireland mm-hmm. so at the end of that thanks very much Sarge, for sharing the story of your career with us there's a huge amount of knowledge there for anyone with an interest or, or indeed anybody who's, who's looking to join the defense forces so thanks very much for coming on thank you very much for uh, including me in the po- podcast i enjoyed speaking to you thank you um, that brings to a close the first episode in Season 2 of the Irish Defence Forces podcast. For further information on the Defence Forces, check out our social media channels and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to visit the members area of military.ie. This episode was produced by Corporal Karen McEnany and Sergeant Paul Keeley of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast will be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.